from Kirkco Media. Imagine a hospital that 50% of the time does not have power. Many dead bodies were lined up against the wall. The floors were covered with bodily fluids. There could be a child uh, next to a dead body in, in a room. There were many of the patients were naked. They didn't have clothes. There were no sheets. That was the voice of a true American hero. Infectious disease specialist Dr. Suzanne Donovan describing what she saw on her visit to an Ebola unit in Sierra Leone. I'm Bill Curtis, and I'm joined by my co-host, triple board certified physician, Dr. Stephen Tabak. How you doing, Steve? Hey, Bill. It's good to be here. This was a pretty remarkable discussion we got to have, isn't it? I'm still reeling, actually, from the impact that she's had on, on us. There's so many great physicians out there. But then there's the physician's physician. There's somebody who elevates themselves to a whole other level, not just because of her expertise in her field, but because of the type of human being that she is, that she's willing to risk her own well-being uh, to care for others and also to help prevent future illness throughout the planet. You know, at a, at a time like this, I think that our country has issues. And we have some things to be embarrassed about. But one of the things that's a real sense of pride is that when some place in the world needs truly special medical attention, they call someone here in the U.S., and we have heroes that respond. No, I agree with you. I mean, I'm a very patriotic person, so I see so much of what's good about this country. It's easy to overshadow or take for granted the amazing things that we do as a country, as a people, as a community. Suzanne Donovan really embodies those philosophies that actually make this country great. She is a truly gifted and generous human being. She's in a class by herself. Okay, so Steve, should we dive in? Absolutely, let's go. Dr. Suzanne Donovan joins me and Dr. Stephen Tabak on Medicine We're Still Practicing. What well, was an interesting invitation. I got a phone call uh, from the WHO, and basically they asked if I could help out with doctors and nurses who were being infected in the hospitals in West Africa. We lost an entire generation of healthcare providers uh, during that outbreak. I said yes immediately, and the person on the other end of the phone call said, no, I think you should think about it for 24 hours. This is a, a big decision. We've had to evacuate some of our personnel. So I gave it 24 hours and I called back and said that uh, I would go. That was after I talked to both my kids who were teenagers at the time. So when I flew over there, it was actually kind of interesting because I was going over there wearing a hat of being the expert in how to prevent infections being transmitted in hospitals. Actually, how is Ebola spread? Ebola is spread by uh, contact with infected fluids, and that could be blood, it could be stool, it could be vomit. The number one risk factor, though, for Ebola in West Africa was the burial practices that were going on there. The burial practices. Yeah, so when someone dies in these countries, the families gather, they, they bathe the body, uh, they hug the body, they kiss the body, they take the water. That must have been very frustrating for you. Well, it, it, it certainly um, underscored the importance in an outbreak of using an anthropologist to address some of the cultural practices. Sierra Leone did, uh, and the WHO did use some anthropologists, and we were using them to try to work with the communities so that um, they, they could still follow their burial practices but do it in a safe way. But going back to your original question, I arrived. 
And when I arrive, the first thing you do is you you get training from the UN of how not to be um, kidnapped, how not to be shot. They gave me a badge with my blood type in big letters. And so I put underneath the blood type, do not transfuse. (laughs) Because I thought it would be better for me to exsanguinate than to get a transfusion during an Ebola outbreak. So during that training, I got pulled out because the hospital that I was going to be going to, there was one doctor left, a U.S. doctor, and I was told that doctor just became infected with Ebola. So I jumped in the Jeep with my buddy, who is a French physician, a Swiss physician, fantastic. And we traveled uh, eight to 10 hours to the eastern border of Sierra Leone. He was in the guest house. My first Ebola patient was a U.S. physician. And I knocked on the door. He answered the door, and he clearly was sick. And then what ensued is he did not want to be evacuated because it was nighttime. He knew how difficult that was going to be, the evacuation. He wanted me to put him in the hospital, which I said was not a good idea because, number one, uh, we did not have consistent power in that hospital, and it was a very high-risk situation. I had not even been in the hospital, and I knew it was a high-risk situation. When you went to visit him, were you protected at the time? No. So so I think what it's really important when you talk about highly uh, fatal diseases uh, that are infectious is my approach is I do a risk assessment. Although we talk about using the highest level of protection when you're actually taking care of a patient, touching the patient, particularly in the advanced stages, if someone is, you know, five feet away from me and I'm talking to them, there's really not an immediate need for what we call PPEs or personal protective equipment. So how did these doctors get infected? So you have two populations of doctors. You have the the nationals who have the risks in the hospital, but they also have the risks in their community. So where did they get infected? And then you have the doctors who are coming from Europe and from the U.S. to help. Ebola is a very unforgiving disease. So the infectious dose of Ebola is like six to eight virions. It's tiny. If it landed on your skin, you're not going to get infected. But if you have small abrasions, if you hear irritation, if you touch a mucous membrane, that would be enough for you to get infected. So, you so put is it transferred by, like, sweat? Could someone, that's, that's such the a, doctor that you went to visit, if he had just opened his door and you touched the doorknob, is it something that you could? No. And, and you can see we, don't, we didn't have really any sustained transmission in the U.S. with the cases that we had here. When transmission occurs, it occurs at the very end of the illness when the, the amount of virus or what we call the viral load is very, very high. And so the highest risk are going to be the healthcare workers, which is why the healthcare workers are always the canary in the mind for Ebola and other hemorrhagic outbreaks. And then the second part is handling the body, which is teeming with millions of copies of virus, which is why these burial practices were so high risk. You got there. You had one fairly disappointing conversation. So I'm very persuasive. It's very hard to say no to me. I get that feeling already. (laughs) Yes. I convinced him it was in his best interest to be evacuated by me and my buddy. The journey back to Freetown was quite interesting because you can't go in the ambulance with him because it's a highly infected um, environment. So we followed him, and we had a police escort um, because there's police stops all along the way. And our escorts kept on stopping. And so this guy's, this, this physician's critically ill, 
And we're both wondering, my buddy and, and me, Frederic um, Bosch, why do they keep on, on stopping? And so I finally asked, like, have you been drinking? And they admitted that they had brought alcohol in the front of their police car because it was cold and it was about 75 degrees and they needed to keep warm. So they had to keep stopping so that they could go to use the bathroom. Oh, my God. (laughs) Um, So we finally got to Freetown and uh, we we got this very brave U.S. physician uh, into the hospital there where he was evacuated uh, the next morning to the U.S. He was in the uh, ICU in Emory for many months and survived. So... What is the treatment that he was given in order to survive? Well, that's such an excellent question because we talk about the mortality rate. So the mortality rate for healthcare workers in Africa who get Ebola is 70%. The current mortality... Meaning the death rate for those listeners. So so 7 out of 10 individuals who get Ebola that are healthcare workers are going to die if they're in Africa. You have no supportive services in Africa. You don't have oxygen. You don't have ventilators. Very difficult to do IVs. So you don't have the supportive services. The, the, more, the death rate, if you are evacuated to Europe or to U.S. or developed country, is much less. I'm not minimizing it. Almost everyone who had Ebola was in the intensive care unit. They were critically ill. Many of them developed kidney failure and failure of their other organs, but many of them survived. This type of support is not available. What, what percent would you say actually survive once they've gone into multi-system organ failure? Is it typical for the rest? Is it uh, commensurate with the rest of the data relative to multi-system organ failure for standard septic shock that we see in the first world? I, I think it is. And yeah. if you look at actually the death rate in the U.S. of, of the Ebola-infected healthcare workers, I don't know one healthcare worker who died. The only individual who I believe died in the U.S. was the African patient. If they survive, are there ramifications yes. for having had the disease? Absolutely. Absolutely. We're, and much of this we don't even recognize. We're recognizing now that there's reservoirs where this virus may persist. We know that there's long-term impacts um, on your eye. I evacuated or helped evacuate three of my colleagues. So it shows you the number that get infected. These were people... I worked with. Are you saying reservoirs within the body that then cause ongoing inflammatory damage? Yes. Or reservoirs uh, vis-a-vis a typhoid Mary where you can be infectious and not be infected? Both. Or not be sick from the, the, Both. the, the disease? I Both. See. Once you've been infected and, and you have developed immunity to the virus and you have survived, you no longer can be reinfected. With that subtype. With, so it's a subtype. It's very similar to multiple, kind of dengue. How many sub, there are multiple subtypes? Multiple. I see. So, so uh, to go back, I think to your 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 original question, you're not out of the woods if you walk out of the hospital. We know that a month out, you still can detect the virus, and we're learning more every time. And and it's probably different for the individuals, right? Because there's probably a little bit of a different immunologic response. I think there's a lot more that we don't know about Ebola. We kind of look at Ebola that everyone dies or they get very sick. I personally think that there's a lot of subclinical infections uh, that are going on in Africa. And then we really, I wanted actually to check all the healthcare workers. And I wanted to check the dogs because there were dogs going through all the Ebola units. And I wondered about other mammals besides bats, which are a big reservoir for Ebola. You know, are they also carrying this virus? So let's step back a little bit. Just from the very beginning, the WHO 
came to you, and you said you didn't even think about it for 24 hours. Have you always had this kind of courageous spirit that you're going to walk into the lion's den and without even much consideration, you're, you say you're going to be there? Because in this permissive society where everybody gets an A, um, and everybody is a hero because they, they helped an elderly person walk across the street. The fact that somebody would actually put themselves in harm's way, which to me is the definition of a hero, for a greater cause, it is truly heroic. And yet it's something you did with almost no thought whatsoever. You knew right away Over and over and over again, Steve. She's been back to these kind of outbreaks many times. Indeed. Well... I I thank you for those thoughts, but this is what I would say is, you know, this is kind of what I do. I'm an infectious disease physician. I'm a specialist in infection control, how diseases are transmitted. Sorry. I'm sorry. I know lots of infectious disease doctors, and I love them. They're great physicians. I rely on them every day. But to have the courage, truly the courage and the dedication to walk into such a dangerous environment... uh, is, is truly amazing um, and inspiring. We have to take a short break, but when we return, Dr. Donovan's going to describe what it's like to enter one of the most dangerous places on Earth. Stay tuned. Hi, my name is Chris Porter from When Last I Left. The show you've been listening to is sponsored by Proudsource Water. Not only do they distribute their water in these stylish and recyclable aluminum bottles... But the water itself is sustainably sourced and naturally filtered. Proudsource Water believes in the ripple effect, that one person's actions can impact the world for the better. You do your part, and I do mine, and maybe we come out better than we started. So go to ProudsourceWater.com to learn more about the company, their vision, and their water. Leave the world better than you found it. Drink Proudsource Water. We're back with host Dr. Stephen Tabak and our very special guest, infectious disease specialist, Dr. Suzanne Donovan. When you were there in the hospital, tell us about what you saw, how many patients were there, how did you handle so many patients? So the first, first day I walked in with my buddy, because you always enter in a unit with another healthcare provider. You, you use a buddy much like when you go scuba diving. Yeah, so I'm a diver. So to me, when I would train people, I said, you know, your approach to going into Ebola unit is very similar to going scuba diving. You, you have to be very compulsive. Uh, you have to go through your checklist. You do things the same way every time. So when you don, where you put on your PPEs, you put them on the same way, the same sequence. And when you doff, which is taking off of it, you take them off in the same way, very meticulously, and you dive with a buddy. So the buddy's checking you, and you're checking the buddy, and you try to stick together. It was a little tough in this unit because when we walked in, imagine a hospital that 50% of the time does not have power. It's during the raiding season. To get into the unit, you have to cross a little wooden bridge with running water. You're gowned up with a mask that is now fogging up because you're in the tropics. You're so just gowned up? This is not like a space suit? I mean, it's I It's like pictured... a space suit, yeah. It's a Tyvek suit. I'll send you a picture of me. <laughs> Sounds good. We'll actually, we'll, yeah. we'll, anyone who, who sends us an email, yeah. we'll send you them a picture yes. of, of you in your getup. And in our, in, in our, in our getup... We put our first name so that everyone knew I was Dr. Suzanne, so that the patients, because it was very frightening. Many of these patients were from remote villages. We looked like we were from another planet. 
and the unit was was filled with about 120 patients, which is really was the largest unit that I know of. Many dead bodies, because once that physician was infected, no one went back in that unit. So bodies were lined up against the wall. The floors were covered with bodily fluids. Oh, my goodness. Um, the wards were co-ed, so there, 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 there could be a child uh, next to a dead body in, in a room. There were many of the patients were naked. They didn't have clothes. There were no sheets. And so when we went in there, no one had been in there for, for a couple days. We, we brought in what's called ORF or oral, like a Gatorade, a cheap Gatorade, um, because one of the reasons you, you die, to, to answer your question, is there's such profuse diarrhea that there's a lot of disturbances in so things like potassium. Pota- potassium and magnesium, and I, I actually think a lot of these individuals died just from arrhythmias. Mm-hmm. And, and Emory published their data of how difficult it was to keep up with the potassium and magnesium Could replacement. Could you measure the potassium and magnesium? No, we didn't so know. there was nothing. So you were just no. guessing it. There was probably we, no time. We, 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 we there had was renal failure. You have no idea if potassium we, we going had, up. We had three lab tests. We had an Ebola test. We had a test for another hemorrhagic fever called loss of fever. And then we had the ability to do a rapid malaria test. Does it matter, though, what they have? If, if it, you're just treating symptoms anyway, why bother having... Even any of those tests, you have somebody who's bleeding, having diarrhea, having fever. Are you going to treat them differently? So that, that, that's a great question. The Ebola test was critically important for two reasons. Epidemiologically? Epidemiologically, if we had a confirmed case, every contact of that individual had to be followed up. And that is how you stop an outbreak. That's not what's going on right now in the Congo. Number two... Um, the PCR test, which is a very sensitive way to detect the virus, once that test became negative, you could leave. And so these patients could be trapped there for a long time. So these tests were very important for morale and getting patients out of there Um, and and hopefully back to their villages, although many of them were shunned. So um, the... I think that was a moment when I realized I was in a situation that I had not encountered before. I've been in a lot of dangerous situations, but when I was in that unit with patients surrounding me, you know, trying to ask for help with bodies lying on the floor, you, 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 part of you could feel a little bit of, you know, this is not a good situation, Suzanne. And also, I'm a single mom. And I thought to myself, how did I get myself in this situation? <laughs> well, what was, your, what was your goal? Was your goal actually to, to save the people in the hospital, to save the town from future outbreaks, to get them to stop burying their, their parents by, by hugging them and washing them? Where, in other words, where did what, he, begin what, what he's asking on behalf of your friends and family, what were you thinking and what is wrong with you? <laughs> well... My my first goal, I'm a passionate advocate for healthcare worker safety. When those healthcare workers, when those nurses in Dallas became infected because they were not provided the appropriate protection and education, I was incredibly angry about that because I think we failed them. And I, I think we take healthcare workers for granted. 
um, healthcare workers in the emergency room or in inpatient units um, uh, can be beaten, can be hit. They're exposed to communicable diseases. They, they sometimes put their life on the line. And so when I initially went there, my goal was whatever health care workers were left, I wanted to protect them. And by the way, not one health care worker while I was there during that first, um, my first deployment got infected. Congratulations. Thank you. That's amazing. I'm sorry, first deployment? Yes, I was there three times. Um, so that was my first goal. It's amazing. My second goal was to come up with some creative solutions and out-of-the-box solutions. Because remember, I didn't work for the WHO. I didn't work for the CDC. So I didn't have to listen to anyone. And so one of the things that I implemented was using survivors to care for the patients there. Right? So you were limited. You can't. That is a great idea. Yeah, thank you. Oh, they're predominantly immune, correct? Unless yes. Unless it's a different subtype. Yes, and we paid them. Um, and then the last thing I did was close down that hospital, which I felt was way too dangerous in the way it was set up, the hybrid model, but also the setup. When you're dealing with a highly infectious disease, we have a certain approach, kind of what I'm talking about with scuba diving, where you don't want patients leaving, you don't want them mixing, you don't want suspects with confirmed cases. And we just had no control. We had no security. We didn't have really a very good engineering plan. And so when you deploy with the WHO, you give your recommendations at the end. And one of my recommendations was to, to close down KGH. It was called kind of a journal hospital. And it's kind of like my life. When people, when I'd go back, they'd say, you were at KGH. <gasps> Because it was known as such a dangerous place. And it closed, and I was told, WHO will never invite you back. You, you, you're putting, you're basically closing down their model. And I said, well, you know, what do I care? I'd rather do what's safe um, uh, for the healthcare workers there. Did, did, and, you, did you convince the townspeople to stop burying their dead in that fashion? So that was not my role at that time. We had many people, and so that was, you know, the CDC partnering with a lot of the epidemiologists, and uh, we did hire an anthropologist. And so part of what we would do is we would allow them to do a burial where they could see the body because they didn't trust the body was actually in the coffin. So they wanted to see the body was in there. We had kind of them at a distance so that they wouldn't hug the body or have intimate contact. We'd allow them to put like a blanket from their village or something personal in the coffin. We would bathe the body with bleach. Uh, you know, Ebola is a very fragile virus. Bleach was kind of, you know, the currency we used, but uh, you, we could have used other types of uh, disinfectants, but bleach is cheap. Hand sanitizer effective or not quite? There's no hand sanitizer there. So we use bleach and water. But would it be effective? Uh, alcohol would be effective, yes. So, Dr. Donovan, you've been around the world in some of the strangest places that I can't even spell. I wonder if you could tell me how you compare your experiences with governance in other countries, some underdeveloped, some developing, some even industrialized like Singapore, the U.S., Finland, France, Canada. Tell me what your observations are about how these governments are handling your field. That's an outstanding question. And, uh, you know, I think that really depends um, 
on the country that we're looking at. In general, I spend most of my time in under-resourced countries. And those countries do just do not have the ability to have an effective public health response without external aid or an effective clinical response. So I just returned from Nepal where there are two outbreaks going on. The main outbreak is a dengue outbreak. And, um, you know, there's very, very large clinics uh, that we're calling fever clinics where there's thousands of patients uh, being seen. Uh, very little clinical support. If you don't have resources as a patient, you, you, you don't get treatment at most of the institutions. It's always difficult for me to see people die from vaccine-preventable diseases in these under-resourced countries when they would really benefit from being immunized and many of these vaccines are being declined by, by our communities here in the United States. Suzanne, tell us about something good that's happening in this world when it comes to communicable diseases, infectious diseases. Uh, clearly, you've taken your last 30 years and dedicated it to diseases like AIDS. So, I, you know, I saw my first AIDS patients in 1985 in Tanzania and Dar es Salaam. And, you know, it was wards in, in Muhumbili, which was a hospital there, filled with people dying with HIV, most of them also with tuberculosis, which is uh, probably the most common infection internationally that complicates HIV. And I'm old enough that I was there when AZT was introduced, and then we had two drugs, and then we introduced in 96, 97 the cocktail, which totally changed the face of HIV. All of a sudden, we had a disease that progressed in one direction, which is really into the hospital, and then people would die, where people were getting their lives back. They were going back to work, having children, um, really having normal lifespans. And it's incredibly gratifying to see the advances of, of what really our country has done with a lot of the expedited medication approval through the FDA to get these new drugs out there and to people with or without insurance. Because remember, HIV has been carved out by the federal government. And so if you don't have insurance, you will, in most states, have access to care for HIV treatment. Definitely in California, if you have no insurance, if you're documented, undocumented, you will get treatment for your HIV. And that is a very important thing to do irrespective of the insurance coverage because treating someone with HIV means it's not going to spread to their partners. So it's a public health intervention. It's not only going to keep them healthy, it's going to break the chain of transmission because this epidemic is driven by untreated individuals. Treated individuals, if they're taking their medication, do not transmit this disease for the most part. I've been taking care of women um, uh, who are pregnant for the last 20 years, hundreds of women. I've had no infected babies, zero at wow. my institution. All those individuals I treat during the pregnancy um, we treat the babies after they deliver. I've not had one infected baby. This is huge 
from an infectious disease standpoint. And this is something that can occur in resource-limited countries. The Gates Foundation and other foundations have been incredibly supportive, in addition to the U.S., and providing access to care in countries like Africa that has have a very high rate of infected women and infected pregnant women of providing therapy to prevent transmission. Well, Dr. Suzanne Donovan, I have to say that the way you have dedicated your life to making our planet a better place and helping the rest of us and being so selfless and diving into some of the most dangerous areas in the world, well, there's a special place in heaven waiting for you. And we want to thank you very much. You are a hero. Tell me, if someone wants to follow you and learn more about you, where should they go? I have no idea. <laughs> <laughs> there's no, there's no I, website. I, there's am, no... I am the most unsavvy person about any of that. Uh, we're equal. <laughs> okay. Uh, I think that speaks volumes as to the type of human being that you are. I, I, and let's not edit that out at all. I think that's an important <laughs> statement right there, which says it all. Absolutely. You are a person for the people. And uh, you're not about marketing in any way. Uh, I, I, I want to echo what Bill says. I'm just uh, actually in awe and, uh, and honored to have had this time uh, to spend with you. And it's been a real pleasure meeting you and talking to you as well. I, I mean, really a wealth of information, both of you. Thank you. Dr. Stephen Tabak and Dr. Suzanne Donovan, thank you for making this such a special episode of Medicine We're Still Practicing. Next time, in part two of our conversation with Dr. Donovan, we'll talk about the importance of immunization and how the anti-vax campaign may be putting us all at risk. You don't want to miss it. If you like what you hear, please tell your friends and let us know how we're doing by leaving a comment. It really helps if you give us a five-star rating, and we really appreciate it. You can also subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. This episode was produced and edited by Mike Thomas, audio engineering by Michael Kennedy, and the theme music was composed and performed by Celeste and Eric Dick. Thanks for listening. From Kirkco Media, media for your mind.